Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and, well, the greatest of emergency medicine. We're trying to help you keep up with literature, and to do that, we're trying to spoon-feed you the latest research. Let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we're going to be covering. First off, don't want any pukey-pukey? Well, you could put pressure on the neck, but you know, it might worsen your view. Maybe there's a way around that, though. Second, the best airway and the most secure airway might not be the same thing for pediatric out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Third, first pass success on our COVID patients, what is the best way? Fourth, adult pre-hospital airways, a review of what we know to date. And then finally, the DL on VL in trauma patients. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the glamorous Seth Walsh-Blakemore. Nicholas Sreika, and Clay Smith. And so without further ado, I bring you the first article, which this week was titled The Effect of Paratracheal Pressure on the Glottic View During Direct Laryngoscopy, a Randomized Double-Blind Non-Inferiority Trial out of the Journal of Anesthesia and Analgesia. So cricoid pressure used to be all the rage. Give them the old Selleck maneuver and you'll be protecting them from aspirating, right? Or, you know, that's at least what we thought it was. It doesn't really actually do that, but even if you believe that it does, then it's been shown to even decrease the glottic view that you might get when you're looking under direct laryngoscopy. It's a nice idea, though. So maybe we're just kind of doing it wrong? Would a similar maneuver like paratracheal pressure still have the same pitfall of worsening your view? To assess this, the authors performed a randomized double-blind trial of 149 adults undergoing general anesthesia and compared the Cormac-Lehan view between paratracheal or cricoid pressures, both done with 30 newtons of force. The results were kind of unimpressive. The paratracheal pressure decreased the view 0% of the time, and the cricoid pressure decreased the view 2.9% of the time. This fell well below their non-inferiority margin of 15%. By other measures, paratracheal pressure has some potential advantages over cricoid pressure, like the ease of mask ventilation and ventilating at a lower peak inspiratory pressure. They even did some ultrasounds to actually see if the esophagus was actually pushed to the side and occluded, and that sure seemed to be the case 98% of the time. Altogether, if cricoid pressure hadn't already been abandoned, then this might be a great alternative. As it stands, I don't know that many people are looking for this. If you do have to bag for a long time though, then perhaps this method might be worth it. In a spoonful, paratracheal pressure was non-inferior to cricoid pressure in regards to degrading your laryngoscopy view. Then we have the second article titled Endotracheal Intubation versus Superglottic Procedure in Pediatric Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest, a registry-based study out of the Journal of Resuscitation. Now, how you correct hypoxemia is something of an interesting topic. In the case of arrest, in this case in children, the kid isn't actually going to care how you do it. Now, PALS emphasizes oxygenation, but it too is equivocal about which way you should be managing the airway. You've got a number of choices available to you, though, and little guidance from the literature as to exactly which is best. The data so far actually seems to be leaning towards bag mask ventilation as the way to go. A large in-hospital study from 2016 showed improved survival with bag mask ventilation over endotracheal intubation or supraglottic. So similar results have also been seen since then as well, and even corroborated by a meta-analysis. The question today is whether or not that holds up in the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest situation. 
in this case, with a physician being the one to manage the airway. This was a multi-center retrospective cohort study of almost 1,600 patients from the French National Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest Registry. All the patients were managed in a mobile ICU, staffed by a doctor, a nurse, and an emergency physician. And this is actually pretty common in the French EMS system. Now, the patients were propensity scored and weighted using inverse probability of treatment matching, which is pretty much as close to being randomized as we're going to get. Most of the patients, 86% of them, had endotracheal intubation, 13% of them had bag valve mask ventilation, and the last percent had supraglottic airways put in place. The rates of ROSC were not significantly different between any of the groups. For the primary outcome of 30-day survival, it was 8% in the endotracheal intubation group, and actually nearly double that at 14% in those that were not intubated. So receiving an endotracheal intubation gave you an odds ratio of 0.39 for survival and an odds ratio of 0.32 for good neurological outcomes. Now, this is just an association, and I know it's more convenient to bag someone who's been intubated, but the evidence doesn't support making the effort to do so, it would seem. In fact, this study certainly makes it seem as though it's really better not to intubate. A mobile ICU is a very specific setting, though, and it can't necessarily be generalized to other places. But this shows that even under ideal conditions, the decision to intubate shouldn't necessarily be reflex. In a spoonful, the study showed a higher 30-day mortality in pediatric patients intubated for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in French mobile ICUs compared to if they had bag valve mask ventilation or a supraglottic airway. Then we have the third article titled Emergency Airway Management in Patients with COVID-19, a prospective international multi-center cohort study out of the Journal of Anesthesiology. If you are the best at intubation in the room, then you've certainly been asked to take the first shot at intubating a COVID patient by now. Early on, there was a lot of fear about intubating, and I think a lot of it was overblown in terms of how dangerous it really was for the practitioner, but we've made big strides since then. Either way, getting the tube in on the first pass is important for reducing the potential aerosols and disease transmission to the staff that could happen during intubation. What are some evidence-based tips for maximizing first-pass success in COVID patients? To answer this important question, I bring you a multi-center, multinational prospective cohort study conducted from May 2020 to October 2020 to determine factors associated with first-pass success in patients with known or suspected COVID-19 infections who were in need of emergency airways. Their data included 4,500 emergency tracheal intubations across 32 countries though a little over the majority of these countries were just in the UK. Now, most of the intubations were done by anesthesiologists, followed distantly by critical care doctors. First-pass success was achieved in almost 90% of the cases. Factors associated with first-pass success in this study, which, listen up, this is the whole point of the study, were the use of RSI, the use of a PAPR, prior experience with these patients, and the procedure being done in a high-income country. The country you were in actually made a really big difference. You were about half as likely to get first-pass success if you were in a low-income country. All the other things you'd normally do to try to get first-pass success are still going to apply here, of course. And the reason, unfortunately, why first-pass success might have been lower in low-income countries isn't exactly clear, but it was a significant difference. It might be that they use less videolaryngoscopy, but the study showed no significant difference in the use of videolaryngoscopy of videolaryngoscopy, so patients could just be presenting or being intubated later, maybe due to limited resources. 
In a spoonful, the best way to maximize your chances of first pass success while intubating a COVID patient are to try to have the most experienced person doing it. Use RSI, use a PAPR, and be lucky enough to be working in a high-income country. Fourth, the article Pre-Hospital Airway Management, a systematic review out of the Journal of Pre-Hospital Emergency Care. Now, we already just spoke about pre-hospital airway management in kids, and now we've got the juicy details for you about adults as well, answering three very important questions which I know have been on your mind. First off, should you do bag valve mass ventilation or get a supraglottic airway? The difference actually is slightly favoring bag valve mask ventilation in terms of neurological outcomes, but the survival, ROSC, and harms were all the same. Next, bag valve mask ventilation or endotracheal intubation. Here, there was no differences by any measure, not in studies that we've got so far. Not in survival, neurological outcomes, ROSC, or harms. Lastly, supraglottic airway or endotracheal intubation. Here, it's a little bit more complicated. There is no difference in survival. Neurological outcomes actually favor endotracheal intubation a little bit. For ROSC, supraglottic airways are favored in adults, but there's no difference in children. Harms vary. There are more insertion attempts in endotracheal intubation, which we know is a surrogate marker for badness. But there was a greater rate of inadequate ventilation in supraglottic airways. Honestly, the main takeaway is probably not to worry too much about getting an endotracheal Honestly, the main takeaway from this is probably not to worry too much about getting an ET tube in if your other methods of ventilating are working just fine. These are excellent alternatives. That being said, the evidence quality here was low, and the skill levels of EMS, uh, they vary widely from one site to the next. Often the EMS team is also trying to attempt one airway and then moving to the other options because of failure, and that wouldn't be well captured here in this data. Lastly, patients themselves are likely to be having a larger effect on the airway that they receive rather than the airway affecting the patient. In a spoonful, there's no clear winner for the best pre-hospital airway, at least not between bag valve mask ventilation, supraglottic airways, and endotracheal intubation. So focus more on interventions that actually make a big difference, like high-quality CPR. And then the last article is titled, Video Laryngoscopy is Associated with First Pass Success in Emergency Department Intubations for Trauma Patients, a propensity score matched analysis of the National Emergency Airway Registry out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Now, two really classic features of mastering emergency medicine are managing traumas and securing the airway. If television is what you're going to trust, then this would be the majority of our jobs. Sadly, that's not the case for most of us, though. But still, these are important skills. Getting an airway in a trauma patient can also be particularly difficult and challenging, and that's likely because mo a lot of them, at least, come in with a C-collar, airway injuries, they're hemodynamically unstable, you call it, they can have it, okay? So what currently is considered the best way of maximizing your airway success? You guessed it, we've covered it on the article a whole bunch of times, it's going to be video laryngoscopy. So how helpful is it in trauma patients? This was a secondary analysis of a data set from a multi-center prospective observational cohort of emergency department intubations, that is, the NEAR registry. So the authors focused on trauma intubations, propensity matching to create balanced groups that match patients with similar pre-intubation characteristics. Children were excluded, and the intubations must have been performed by an emergency physician using either video or direct laryngoscopy, RSI, or no meds. Now, from their near registry, they had 4,500 trauma patients which could be used for this study. And they found that first-pass success with video laryngoscopy was 90%. 
This is compared to 79% with direct laryngoscopy. So direct laryngoscopy was actually 11% worse. Even with propensity matching, the difference was the same. That's an odds ratio of 2.2. Additionally, esophageal intubations were more common in the direct laryngoscopy group. From this data set, the absolute best first-pass success rate was if you used a Macintosh video laryngoscope and used a bougie. This all agrees with prior evidence. It's hard now to justify just using a video laryngoscope as your backup. If you have easy access to it, then honestly, it should be first line, especially in trauma patients, apparently. In a spoonful, the use of video laryngoscopy was associated with improved first-pass success in trauma patients and odds ratio of 2.2. So, all right, let's wrap up everything that we covered today. What did we learn? First, if you're still putting pressure on the neck, then paratracheal pressure won't be any worse for the views that you're getting than cricoid pressure was. Second, it might actually be best not to intubate pediatric out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients. Instead, stick with bag valve mask ventilation or a supraglottic airway, even if they were picked up by a mobile ICU and the airways were managed by an emergency physician. Third, maximize your COVID intubation first-pass success by letting the most experienced person do it. Use RSI. Use a PAPR, and this effect I'm assuming was driven by how crappy it is to use visors. And then there's much higher success if you happen to be in a high-income country. From the fourth article, if your patient's being well-ventilated, great, honestly, don't worry too much about it. There's no clear winner between if they've received bag valve mask ventilation, a supraglottic airway, or endotracheal intubation in the pre-hospital setting. And then lastly, let's be honest guys, if you want to practice direct laryngoscopy, then maybe it'd be best done in the OR or in a simulation. Video laryngoscopy seems to be the much better choice for securing an airway on the first try, certainly in trauma patients as we saw in this study. Now then, that wraps us all up. That's all we have to cover for today, which means that you've earned them, and while we offer them, we have CME credits provided to you through our partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. If you'd like to support me and the blog and the podcast, please leave us a review just somewhere, anywhere. It doesn't matter to me as long as it's five stars. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at our website as well. That's journalfeed.org again. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is really to try to get better care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.